I'm Mark Ronson, and this is the Fader Uncovered podcast. In this interview series, I'll be speaking with some of the most influential and groundbreaking musicians in the world, from genre-defining stars to avant-garde trailblazers, about their lives and careers. Each episode will be rooted in these musicians' iconic Fader cover stories, an institution that over the past two decades has told artists' stories like no other. The podcast is a chance for us to talk about the past, present, and future, reflecting on their breakthroughs, diving into their lives when their covers hit shelves, and discussing what the future might hold now. And it's an opportunity for me to speak to some of the artists I most admire. This is The Fader Uncovered with Mark Ronson. Today, my guest is DJ Premier. It's impossible to overstate his importance to hip-hop history. Actually, just music history in general. And it would also be impossible for me to overstate the importance of his musical influence on my own career. He's my favorite hip-hop producer of all time. And in fact, for the first 10 years of my career, I was just a straight DJ Premier clone. All I knew how to do was emulate this man, because like millions of hip-hop heads, I was in love with his beats. He single-handedly changed the sound of New York rap in the 90s with his signature boom-bap style. Rugged drums, rare samples chopped up in his MPC drum machine and replayed in his signature feel. Iconic choruses he would construct from impeccably scratching snippets of other voices, stringing together the phrases like some kind of musical ransom note, a few words from Erica Badu here, a couple lines from Wu-Tang, and voila, he would make some iconic most deaf chorus like the one in mathematics. His sound has been imitated innumerable times, but it's never the same as the real thing. That beat that I talk over at the beginning of each episode, that is a DJ premiere beat. Funky, emotive, New York to the core. Premier came into the game in the late 80s with the rapper Guru and they formed the group Gangstar. And album by album, they cemented their reputation as one of the greatest rap groups of all time. Premier's musical evolution album to album being a huge part of that. And then, as an outside gun for hire, he gave Nas, Biggie, Rakim, KRS, Jay-Z some of their greatest records ever, and certainly their grimiest. He was the go-to hitman when you needed that gutter song that somehow could also play in the club and on the radio. Premier graced the cover of The Fader very early on. In fact, it was issue number two, winter 1999. It was a joint feature with Zach De La Roca of Rage Against the Machine and Reverend Run of Run DMC, of course. The cover itself is so remarkable it almost seems photoshopped. You can't believe these three people were in the same place at the same time. It's a fantastic picture and I highly recommend Googling it. We've crossed paths quite a bit over the past few years. He was a very big part of Watch the Sound, the music doc series I hosted and co-created for Apple TV. But I still can't help the superfan part of me from geeking out when I'm in the presence of this master. I mean, you only have to ask him about how he made New York State of Mind for Nas, one of the hardest beats of all time. And before you know it, you're in the middle of some story that literally feels like hip-hop history is playing out, like it's a movie. Yeah, me and Nas and Big, we were all hanging out at that time, and Nas needed a ride to the studio, and he played me this demo beat that Q-Tip had for One Love, so I knew that I had to up my game, and I went back and I made New York State of Mind. I mean, this is Mount Olympus stuff to us fans. To premiere, it's just his life. 
he said, yo, I got, I got to go to Puff Studio. You can give me a ride. I was like, yeah. That's when we were all hanging out, 94. Yeah. Me, Big, we were all hanging all the time because yeah. I lived in the neighborhood, in Big's neighborhood. Yeah. So it was like dropping him off was no big deal. He said, yo, pop this cassette and Q-Tip just gave me this joint. He said, it's just pause mixed right now, but we'll, uh, he's going to program in the drum machine. And when I put it in my car, just hearing that boom, 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 boom. And then, you know, it was kind of yeah. jumping. Yeah. You know, yeah. some of them were on, some of them We were like, where the fuck did he? I didn't know who the Heath brothers were at that time. Yeah. And I was like, damn it. I got to change my beat. Because <laughs> the world is yours already had me open. But like yeah. I said, I was there for that to watch Pete lay the scratches, like just hit record. And he just did it through the whole song. Even the It's Yours on the hook. That's yeah. not programmed in. He's wow. just hit record and he's just doing it. Scratches. And no Serato, just the record. Yeah. And and so if it was a little off or whatever, yeah. it was one take. Yeah. And we were like, wow, this shit is dope. And then boom. So um, I know because I heard Q-Tip go on the Cypher Sounds Rosenberg on Juan Epstein podcast. And I didn't know this. And, and Memory they were, Lane. Yeah. Oh, was Memory Lane originally different too? Because yeah. that's what they were talking about. Q-Tip when called Q-Tip in Q-Tip said like, Premiere might get mad? Yes, that yeah, was it. He was incorrect. Okay, okay. I didn't put it out there. He was confusing it with re- maybe with representing no, in the remix. Not, okay. not at all. Memory Lane, the album version is. I didn't like the sample. Nas liked it. Okay, because he was making fun of the cover. The Ruben Wilson. The Ruben Wilson. He said, "Look at this dude." They yeah. laughing at him. We're thumbing around. We find the, the sample, and I'm like, "Nah, I want some hard shit." And he goes, "We already got some hard shit. We got New York State of Mind. We, I, this is different. We ain't got nothing like this." I said, let me hear how you rap to it. And when he did the, the rhyme, I was like, whew, this is dope. So with that said, we went with it. And then I said, since your album is out now for the streets and the DJs and mix show guys, since we were still heavy on running radio, let me do a mean remix. And that's a remix. Tip said that that's the original and it wasn't. Right. But I ain't correct them. I was like, fuck it. Going back to represent for a second, I heard you tell this story about how, and I never knew this, that Nas would go in the booth with 10 or 15 people with him. Mm-hmm. And they were in the booth, even not just doing the chorus, represent, represent, just like they would just be there. always yeah, in there. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yo, pass that, done. I'm like, yo, you got to be quiet. Right. Yeah, yeah, we're recording. All right, all right. Yo, 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 bad to Andy Dunn. I'm like, yo, you got to yeah. be quiet. Yeah. Because he was so excited to be there. And it was fine. But that's what really happened. You know, there's a lot of, I don't know, stories and stuff. And you, just when you just said that, like, it was me and Nas and Big and Puff and we were all rolling together. Obviously, after that shit happened, that there were beefs and those relationships splintered. But that's just so incredible to me that everybody was just, and you were almost like the the glue between a lot of the stuff going on. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, because I was around Large Professor so much, I'd be around Nas. I'd go to all the sessions when he was still programming one time for your mind. And when he did, it ain't hard to tell because he had it using just the regular human nature just throughout the whole shit. And then he's like, yo, I'm going to make it a little more funkier. And then he did the... Mm -hmm. So I was there when he's redoing it because the other one was already just kind of leaked out just, just for people to play. And then when he redid it with the new drums and the boom, boom, ka, boom, boom, I was like, ooh, man. Because yeah. he was so consistent. Halftime had us fucking blown yeah. away. Obviously, we, we all know what Barbecue did for us. So I was just studying large. We, we were together a lot. We go over Ms. McKenzie's house, which was K Cut and Sir Scratch yeah. from Maine. So that was their mother. And she owned the label that they won before they went to Wild Pitch. So I'd be over there all the time. Yeah. And then I helped them get on Wild Pitch. 
because Stu was like, yo, I really want them. Can you put in a good word for me? And I put in a good word and say, yo, he's going to really work your record, which he did. Because you've talked about Marley being a big influence, but was Large Professor also somebody that you big learned time. production from? Because well? Guru. Guru was like, yo, you got to check this, this group called Main Source. And this guy, Large Professor, raps and he does the beats. And he played me Adam and uh, Think. So once I heard that, because Guru was always tapped into who's new. Mm -hmm. He put me on to them. And you had already done the first Gangstar album, No More Mr. Nice Guy, or was this nah, about the yet. same time? No, okay. we were still talking about me joining the group okay. around that time. So I wasn't officially in the group yet, because I was still with the group that I wanted to get signed, but they didn't like my MC. Yeah. The other crazy thing as well is that, you know, I'm such a fucking huge fan, and you think you know everything there is to know, but one story that I just read about that blew my mind was at one point, because J. Ru obviously came out and was on this super conscious, anti flossy thing and he even did the song you're playing yourself and he was mm. going right at bad boy but no that realize... one wasn't that one oh that wasn't. one wasn't nah they thought it was the only reason why we did it that way is because we were about to put out this exact same loop same way as players anthem yeah same exact way that clark did it so the fact that they beat us to it and we didn't know they were coming out with a right. version so when it came out I was like damn this shit is dope yeah and we were still all cool with each other yeah. so Rue was like, damn, man, we were just getting ready to put that same loop out. As he's getting near the end of, of Wrath of the Math being finished, we always do singles last. Right. So when it got down to like the last one or two songs, right. I was like, yo, I still want to use that sample. I said, let me see if I can chop it a different way. Took the end, put it at the front, put the front at the end, yeah. and just chopped it, and, and then chopped the, the uh, bottle clinking. Yeah. And just, so I had that on the pass. So I could do the thing, 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 yeah. thing, you know. You know, obviously the creator brain part was always just a thing that competitively that how my brain always worked because that's how Pete and all them were. Next thing you know, they're like, oh, he's hating. It's like, no, it has nothing to do with play. play it had nothing to do with players anthem and you're playing. It's a none of that. Right. None of that. Okay. One day was even specific. It's whoever we spoke on, he spoke on, but I supported it. Yeah. And I still do. Especially for at that time. I yeah. mean, we were uh, younger, so we were on some fuck that shit because... That's part of hip-hop, yeah. you know? And all he was doing was saying what hip-hop looks like right now. Yeah. And that's what it was. It's kind of amazing, too, because there's that story I never heard that you guys were all in the early days on tour together, and J.Ru says it. What was the story about going in and you guys are all staying in this motel and mm -hmm. Big is just naked on the bed? Well, he's in his boxers. Boxers, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, he wasn't butt-ass. Right. <laughs> And he's eating. He's uh, but he has a big bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken and, and, and yeah, and then uh, everybody's in the room in his room, and you know cause we all smoke together, get smoke some good blunts, and uh, we're about to drive back to New York. We had already done the gig, and uh, Jay Rue was just starting to be on this whole. I'm not eating meat no more. Yeah. I'm changing my diet. So he was like, "Yo, big, you need to stop eating that chicken, man. You, you know you need to change your diet and get healthy." He goes, "Man." Fuck that. I mean, my name is Biggie, yeah. not Bark Him. <laughs> so, but, you know, and that's how funny Big is, man. Like, I love this picture of like J. Ru, like really concerned, like, Big Man, you got to watch your health. Yeah, you got to be around yeah, for a while. Yeah. It's, and, and, like, and, my name is Biggie, not Bark Him. I was like, this motherfucker is hilarious, man. Uh, Him and Big L are just fucking naturally yeah. funny, yeah. Because obviously you did so much incredible shit with Biggie, but the kick in the door story as well is amazing because that was then the beat that you made that Biggie kind of wanted to go back at 
you were the reason that everybody was settling that shit on wax in mm -hmm. some ways as opposed to yeah and you were like almost like the un but what was that story puffy didn't originally like the beat to kick he didn't the originally like the beat um and it's crazy because being as today is the anniversary of ready to die 27 years is it wow yeah 27 okay. years right i think puff office called and told me that my ready to die plaque is ready so come pick it up at the office so i'm all happy like Ooh, i got yeah. platinum plaque going to pick it up and i had already dropped off the beat for big to hear on the little 10 minute cassettes yeah you know so when i got in the uh reception office they gave me my plaque and i'm walking to the elevator and puff sees me goes man i need to speak to you real quick say yo man i need you to work on another beat for big because i'm not feeling that one that you dropped off I'm like, you know, that beat is dope, Puff. Yeah. And he's like, nah, I'm not feeling these. And now I need that tunnel banger. I said, it is a tunnel banger. Yeah, because Unbelievable was just, it was such an incredible, because it was the B-side to Juicy. It gave all this thing. So Puff is just thinking like, yeah, of course. So, yeah, so go and, ahead. and Puff's got a good ear. I mean, right. he's, he, you know, when it comes to producing, I know he's not tapping the drum machines, but he does understand, he understands hits. Yes. And, and you got to tip your hat to him on that, you know, so he understands the vision of how to make a superstar. Yeah. So my thing is, Big always said, and Jay, all of them, yo, I need that gutter joint from you to round out my album. They may yeah. have a radio record that, that wasn't in my lane, but when they need the gutter, which is what I'm a fan of, as a fan, that's what I want to make. Mm -hmm. So when you need that gutter, come to me. And yeah. of course, I was one of the go-tos. So to me, kicking the door beat sounded like that same lane. It, it was. I mean, it yeah. was incredible. So, yeah. so when he said, yo, nah, man, I need you to make something else, I said, okay, give me another day and I'll make something else. I wasn't even like, no, I'm not doing it. I was like, cool, I, I, let me go back to the drawing board and see what I come up with. I'll bring something tomorrow. And he's like, cool. That was it. Maybe three, four, five o'clock that afternoon, Big calls me directly and says, yo, when he tells me to come in tonight, I'm like, yo, man, I gotta. I, have, I told Puff I'll do the beat tomorrow. And he goes, nah, I want to rap on the one that you left this morning. I said, but Puff don't like that one. He goes, fuck that. I'm going to go in. <laughs> he goes, I got to get at your man, though. Yeah. I was like, all right, it's, it's rap. Yeah. You know, and like you said, it ain't turning violent. Let, yeah. let, say what you got to say. Yeah. And, and I, when he said your man, he was talking about J. Rue. Yeah, or, of course. Okay, okay. Yeah, because him and J. Rue was, was close. You yeah. know what I'm saying? We, we all were. Me, yeah. him, Dap. Mel, the, the, all the Gangstar Foundation, Suge, I remember we would all go down there and hang out with them on the, on the weekends because they would always be there on Fulton and Washington. And we were Washington between Lafayette and Green. So we were right down. And we always go there to get our 40s because we were all 40 yeah. drinkers back then. And Big was when he was starting out, he came to you. He would always ask you. Didn't he ask you? That's how you unbelievable came about. He was like, "I need a record for you," and you were kind of like, "Ah, everyone's got oh, a lot of my play right now." Yeah, I just didn't have time based off of, because what it was. When we were going to maybe the Gavin or Jack the Rapper or one of those, Big had already given us cassettes of the the earlier versions of Ready to Die. Yeah. So. And what was on it? What did you hear? Uh, Warner was on it. I lost my mind because okay. Easy Moby lived down the block. Okay. We all lived in the same neighborhood and we all hung. Yeah. Lady of Rage and Nikki D lived together. Wow. And shout to Terrible T. That's Nikki's sister. The three of them lived together. Wow. I remember they used to have purple Def Jam jackets with the purple leather sleeves. And I remember one day I walked up on Rage and said, "Yo." 
one day I'm gonna rob you for that jacket. She goes, oh yeah, and she pulls out a 45. <laughs> and then Nikki D pulls out hers and says, yeah, that me too. Try to take the jacket. You know, just joking yeah. around. But that's how, well, <laughs> how they I, were I rolling. I Lady of Rage, I just assumed she was a West Coast California. She wasn't at death row yet. Nah, okay, she, okay. she wanted me to help her get her demos popping. But at the time, she was having me loop up Michael Jackson stuff. And I was like, nah, you need to do some hardcore yeah. shit. She said, but I could do hardcore over that. And I was like, nah. And we just ended up just still being cool as just friends and hanging together. And next thing you know, she said, yo, I'm going to the West Coast. I'm going to find Dre and I'm going to get a deal out there. And I'm thinking she's just talking because she's frustrated. Right. She goes, watch, I'm going to get a deal. We had a concert, a gang star show at the Palladium. This is months and months and months and months later. And we go out there and I'm like, is that her waiting for us at the backstage entrance? And she's got, you know, the yellow jacket and there's that security on the back with yeah. the black letters. I'm like, yo, what you doing? You made it out here? She goes, yeah, I just got signed to Dre. It's a new label called Death Row. And she's like, he's coming out with a record called The Chronic. Yeah, you're going to be seeing it soon. And then all of a sudden The Chronic dropped and I saw the Death Row inmates at the bottom left corner. Yeah. And it said Lady of Rage. I was like, yo, she's on there. And then she's then I heard High Power. Right. When Hot Power came on, that's she's the first verse. Said she made it. Yeah. Next thing you know, she's on everything. The Let Me Ride video, making the low rider hop and all that. I was like, wow. And then she was on her way. She's incredible. But during that time, it was Rage, Chub Rock, Nikki D, Easy Mo B, Big, April Walker from Walker, where it was two blocks behind us. Another girl named Nikki Nicole, who I toured with, she lived down the block. And uh, that's pretty much it. But we were all popping at the same time, even even though Rage wasn't yet. But Nikki D was because, yeah. you know, she was the first lady of Def Jam. Yeah. That was Big. a good time. And then Big was like, hey, oh. let me get a beat. So when the first Ready to Die was done, Puff had it updated. That's what the, It was a new Machine Gun Funk. The original album had Come On Motherfuckers yeah. that Lord Finesse yeah. did. And they took that one off. You know, so... When he said, man, my album's done, I updated it. I just need that one primo banger. And I was like, man, there's no way to even squeeze it because I make them right on the spot, which you've witnessed. Yes. So I don't have things just sitting there to just play them. He's like, man, I don't care if you take any piece of president and just put some notes on it. And I was like, yeah, come meet me right now. And that's that's how it yes, happened? Yes, dead ass. Fuck. I didn't even think that that's because I forget that that's those drums. And then what, you took the note, you just took some little notes and put them on the pads, different tunings or something. Two different tunings, yeah. Just, oh and, and he was like, yo, he was the one that said, yo, put the R. Kelly line unbelievable from your body's yeah. calling in there. I said, man, shit might be out of pitch. And it just, and it is. It is, but, but it's it perfect. it works, yeah. yeah. I mean, it truly is unbelievable. This song by Biggie Smalls, produced by DJ Premier, is one of the greatest, strangest, almost atonal hip-hop bangers of all time. And it almost never was. I also love this story because it's a testament and an insight into Biggie's musicality. Impeach the President is an obscure 1970s soul song with a very iconic, isolated drum part at the top. Biggie knew that all Premier had to do was maybe sample those drums and quote-unquote play some notes over it, and it could be something. I mean, my mind is still blown. I mean, this is a song I've been listening to for 30 years, and this is its Genesis story. And the fact that Premier's sound and style, the way he would take the same sample of a piano and make different tunings of it, and essentially make a new melody from that one tiny sample. He was so good at it, and obviously firing from another level at that point in his career. 
that sweet spot when you're just in the zone and everything you do is magic. He could fire up that machine and in 15 minutes cook up some banger that still moves us 30 years later. That combination of raw talent, Biggie's vision and insane lyrical skill and presence with Premiere's gutter production sound, it's like one plus one equals two million. I'm sure many people think Valerie was my idea to cover, but I actually didn't know the song until Amy Winehouse brought it to me. I didn't even get it until we started recording it. I love hearing these stories because it's music history, but it's also insight into how an artist's vision can inspire the producer. Taking even an established visionary like DJ Premier into a place they didn't see coming. Biggie was obviously so much more than just a rapper. And the songs he and Primo made together are all-time classics. Back after a break. Him and Jay-Z will say the same thing. Okay, the vocals is good. All right, just do the preem thing and give me a mix. You know, they leave. They're not sitting there waiting. That's incredible. And also, it is a little uncharacteristic. I never knew that that was Big's idea to use the R. Kelly because usually you don't go for like an obvious R&B tune except for maybe the uh, Aaliyah and Amelian, which is mm, so great. That doubt, so yeah. it's amazing to think that Biggie had that idea. And then it just reminded me of something that I also didn't know about your creative process that you say sometimes you hear the melody in your head before you even mm -hmm. know what sample you're going right. to find. I think that's just some DJ shit, man. I mean, especially when it comes to cuts, because either the artist, they might say, I want to, you know, like Jay always said, I, here's the song I want to do. And mm -hmm. he would describe it. Mm -hmm. So I would always make sure the music matched mm -hmm. that description. And he would do the verses. Sometimes he would call you on the phone and just do, do on it the, on the on phone. The only ones he did on the phone were The Evils, because that was the first time we really did something. A friend of foe, I'm just a D&D &D programmer, and he hears the beat, and he's like, yo, turn the mic on, yeah. let's go. And he just did it. Bring it on. He's I'm going to have jazz and my man Sauce Money. He's from Marcy. He's, they're going to spit on it. It's going to be all three of us. So I just did a beat, and they were like, yeah. And, and yeah, I even thought it was a little too emotionally laid back, and they were like, nah, we won't rhyme to that. Yeah. And they just went in and did it. But yeah, the evils, he, he rhymed it over the phone. He gave me all the scratches in order how he wanted it to be, the all the way to I can't die, I can't die. He, he did all of that on, on the phone. Two of the obviously greatest rappers of all time considered two of the greatest debuts in music history, A Reasonable Doubt and Illmatic. Did you have a feeling that these are just like incredibly special people who are going to be like changing the face of music? Are you just in it because there's like 800 other sessions going on that week and you just like, was there moments when you were just like, this is something? You no, know? it was definitely because of who they were, because they're younger than me and they were on the come up. You know, when KRS calls and said, let's do a project called Return of the Boom Bap, he's one of my idols that I'm like, wow, KRS wants to work with me. I was happy Jay and Big and Nas wanted to work with me either, but they're new guys that are actually probably looking at the opposite, where it's like, yeah. well, I get to work with Premier. Yeah. Now, I'm not looking at them, like, down at them, like, yeah, y'all better be lucky. We, not in that way, but that's why it was easier for me to approach them. But if Austin Rakim wants to join, I'm like, oh, yeah, my goodness. Course. It's a different thing yeah. where with Big and Jay and Nas, it was like, okay, yeah, yeah, come yeah. on in, you know, because they were looking to get to where we were. And something else that I hadn't really considered ever until I saw this quote from you that was, it was really cool and it was very beautiful. Also, like giving 
Guru that credit. It was like if Guru hadn't have really encouraged the more left field side of your music and allowed you to do these beats that maybe you wouldn't have found your sound and you wouldn't have had the confidence to then go and be this superstar solo producer as well at the same time. Mm, yeah, that's the thing with Guru. I could do experimental stuff. I couldn't give it to those other artists. They'd be like, nah, I need that banger. That yeah. one that's going to hit in the club or just hit in the streets. Guru, he'll take Robin Hood Theory. That was the first song we recorded on Moment of Truth. Yeah. Like I said, we always do singles last. Yeah. So Robin Hood Theory was a beat I just always liked. And I didn't, wasn't something I could get to another MC that's looking to get a track for their album. But I knew with uh, Guru, it would work. And as soon as he heard it, he wrote it. Boom, done. Yeah. We did You Know My Steeds and Militia last. And uh, Casey and JoJo, uh, Royalty, we did those last. There must have been beats where Guru was like, damn, how did you give that one away? Or was it was. Yeah, but the thing is, it wasn't like I gave it away because I made you it. You made them on the spot. When they got course. to the lab. Yeah, he so, must have teased you, like, yo, you oh, can yeah, say yeah. that. Oh, yeah, yeah. But me. the thing is, and I always say this to people, it ain't like I'm giving like Nas and KRS and Big and Jay better records. When we do Gangstar yeah. now, I'm on the cover with you. Yeah, I'm in the videos with you. We got to have bangers, too. Yeah. And yeah. we did. Yeah. Every album. Yeah. You know, every album has successful singles. Dwig, Just to Get a Rep, You Know My Steez, Manifest, Royalty, Militia. No, you could. There's no doubt that you that some of your greatest tracks Mass ever, appeal. Gangster. I mean, All for the Cash is one yeah. of my favorite. Like, no, absolutely. But I just was. Full clip. Yeah. You know, like, they've all been successful. And then again, yeah, it ain't like I had New York State of Mind and, and I just held on to it until yeah. I got with Nas. It was never made. Yeah. It, we're looking around for samples. Nas is sitting right there with me um, at D&D with the turntables on a big t old TV, the wooden TV case. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. And I'm just thumbing and awesome. We're here. But I'm doom, doom, doom on Joe Chambers and me and Nas like, ooh. I said, hold on. Put it in the 950 and the MPs to trigger it. And yeah. he's like, that's it. I, our only part I had was just the beginning part. The ding, 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 ding. I had that already, but that's yeah. all we had. Yeah. So I just kept letting that run. And then yeah. when we heard the piano, and then I hit that again to see if it'll fit. You know, you always like to just fly yeah. it in, nothing laterally, bring it back, fly it in, pitch it down a little bit. It's a little too fast, fly it in, build it a little bit more. Fly it in, okay, that's about the right way it's going to fit. Throw it in the sample and boom. I mean, if ever there was a, obviously a song that just sounded like if there was ever going to be a documentary about New York in the you know 20th, 21st century, New York State of Mind really is. like I mean, that's why it's at the beginning of our the Apple show on sampling. As you see the backdrop of New York and subways, it's forever mm -hmm. just linked to that. And you are, in a lot of ways maybe with two other people, the architect. For me, you're the greatest, You're as Thank far you. as the rank of architect of the New York sound, and you are from Texas. Like, that is mm -hmm. the crazy, you've never been shy about saying where you're from and, and how you got here, And but that is just always the wildest thing to me. The person that is most synonymous with the sound of New York hip-hop and the most influential person ever for me in it is from Texas. Yeah, country boy. Yeah. At least from 10, 11 years old, me, my sisters, my dad, my mom, we all trekked to New York for for the summer, for the whole summer. You would always come. Every year, every year. That was our thing. Every Summer's coming, at, you know, school's out. We're going to Sumter, South Carolina, where my dad's from. Then we go to North Carolina, to Raleigh, to see Ma Nettie and my Uncle Paul. That's why they're all tatted on here, because they, they were kind of part of the journey of what led me to New York. And Grandfather Bill was my mom's father who lived in Brooklyn, and yeah. that's why... 
the whole New York thing was just normal by the yeah. time I was 13, 14, 15. Yeah. It's not like, wow, I'm in New York. I, I'm so used to it. Yeah. So I know where to go now. I know how to take the train. You know what I'm saying? My, my grandfather would be afraid that I would go, but I, I was one of those like, no, I, want, I can do it. I can move around. No one's going to bother me. And I, I never, no one ever did try anything. I was always fascinated by all the crazy shit that you see on the train. Yeah. Like, but probably Texas also had a really good, it was probably good that you had that experience coming up because you had all these other musical influences and all this stuff coming on. Like you always talk, like when we've talked about music before, you said like not only Parliament Funkadelic and George Clinton, but like new wave and punk. And because yeah. you worked in a record store and yeah, and we used to go to this club right? called Numbers, and they would have you know flock of seagulls, and they'd have the Echo and the Bunny Men, and and they played just all that type of music. They'd play Bauhaus and Joy Division, and you know a Fad Gadget. I was just wow. into all of that oh shit. God, yeah. yeah, man, yeah. I, I was into that. I'll shout to Connie Carr wherever you are. She put me up on all that. She put me up on the Smiths. And I saw Morrissey about four years ago now. Yeah. He was at the garden and Blondie opened up for him. And I was like, yeah. wow, Blondie's yeah. opened up for Morrissey. Yeah. And I saw the Smiths in Houston right before they broke up after the Queen is Dead album. Yeah. Like, I was there. I was at Devo. I even went to Devo when they did Irvin Plaza about five years ago. I was just looking at the footage on my phone because I was filming everything and yeah, got to meet everybody. This was before Bob One died, so you know. I think I went to a Devo show as well in like two thousand nine, and I got drunk and wore the flower. Yeah, pot the, the, hat the, the energy dome. Yeah. They're called the energy dome. What's oh, called the energy? Yeah, dome. Oh, I was die hard. I joined the fan club because when I went to their concert back in the eighties, at that time I think Mark Mothersbaugh, who's in one of the most incredible producers, writers, creators of all time. And to be from Ohio and to be that bugged out, yeah. I, I totally get them. Yeah. It's funny you said the Ohio. You just reminded me when I first met the Black Keys because they're from Ohio. Right. And I was like, you know, obviously Bootsy's from Ohio. There's a different cities had different scenes. But I was like, what was that like? Because as soon as they said Dayton, the first thing that came to mind was Diva. They're like, the Black Keys told me they used to just go outside like members of Devo's house when they were like young musicians coming up, just like trying to like give the demo tape or get any um whatever attention from them. And yeah. then... Duran Duran told me that I think that was one of the first time they saw synthesizers when they were like 16. Nick Rhodes from Duran Duran went to the the Camden Roundhouse to see Devo and wow. he just had his mind blown like that was the first time they saw synths and wow. guitars in the way that they used I'm it. a Duran Duran junkie. I got to go to the Union of the Snake tour yeah. in Texas and I've never heard people scream to the end of the concert and damn near drown out a big arena like that yeah. for them. You know, I was always a big Simon LeBond fan, the way he he's a great performer. I love great performers, especially if you're a front man. Yeah. And then, you know, Taylor was just cool on the bass. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, like Nick never moves. And he never looks like he's happy, but he's yeah. he, he's like the, the huge sound of, of what they do, you know, synth-wise. Shout out to my, one of my, my classmates, Trey Ellaby. When I went to school in Texas and he put me on to Duran Duran and the whole Rio thing, I even just found a picture of him with two of our friends from school and he's like, my Duran Duran hairdo. Right. I graduated high school in 84, so that was the sound. Yeah. You know, we're going to Purple Rain tonight after school, right? Yeah. He's like, yeah, because, you know, it just came out. Yeah. And we went eight times. You know, we went to the theater over and over just to see that. What was the hip hop like? What was coming to Texas that time? Like all the big stuff, Houdini, I yeah, guess. The Fresh CFO. Fest, yeah. We, I went to the Fresh Fest at Astro World. It was Rockin' Master Scott and the Dynamic Three. It was Nucleus. 
Dougie Fresh and the Get Fresh crew featuring MC Ricky D. He wasn't Slick Rick yeah. yet. Fat Boys, uh, Houdini, UTFO. I'm trying to think of who else. Because LL, we went to, our place to go to was the Summit. Everything was at the Summit. You know, when I saw Parliament, the Ozzy Brothers. My mother's a big concert yeah. fanatic, so we'd see Quincy Jones. And he brought the Brothers Johnson on, and I was freaking out because I was a big fan of them. Went to Tina Turner. Me and my mom would see Shaka Khan. We saw Confunction. Wow. I forgot who the group was opening for Confunction, but somebody in the crowd was tired of waiting for them to come on. And while the other band is on, they kept going, Confunction! Where the, one of the members of the band keeps looking like, like, yo. Yeah. And then they do two or three more songs, Confunction! One thing is the drummer. He's looking like, yo, shut the fuck up. Yeah. But, yeah, man, my mom and I went to, even Michael Jackson once he left the Jacksons, because when we were young, we went to the Jackson 5 concerts maybe every six months. They would always be back in Houston. Did you ever get to work with Michael or meet Michael? No, I, I wish I could have, man. Uh, and I was standing right there when James Brown rehearsed the year that we uh, did the BET Awards. They didn't have hip-hop awards then, and uh, Monique was the host. And we did the tribute to Jam Master J that DMC assembled. Mm -hmm. Actually, I got to give myself credit on the assembly. Jesse Collins had other DJs who we highly respect that was going to do it. And he hadn't called them yet, but I'm like, nah, mm -hmm. it needs to be. Flash was the only one that was already on the list. Mm -hmm. I was like, nah, it needs to be Kid Capri because he brings a certain dynamic. Mm -hmm. You got to put Jazzy Jeff mm -hmm. in. There were rumblings like, oh, well, Jazzy Jeff, what has he done lately? And yeah. I'm like, yo, that's Will Smith's DJ. He's new music seminar was a battle for world supremacy. Dude, he's just one of the illest of all yeah. time. Jazzy Jeff, is just, his routines are just yep. ridiculous. And rest in peace to John Cosette, who used to do all the Grammys and everything. And yeah. uh, I was like, well, I'm out. I don't want to do it. And yeah. John Cosette called me directly and was like, hey, I need you to do this. Yeah. You know, put it together. I was like, so can I do it my way? He said, yes. And I was like, cool. I called Capri, called Jeff. And it was one of the most memorable things yeah. in history of yeah. saluting a DJ, which hadn't been done on live television. Yeah. And that was live and vinyl. And it came out so perfect, man. It, so, so that was the same year Michael's going to surprise James Brown and put the cape on him at the end. Now, we knew... But they didn't tell all the staff. So we, we're there rehearsing and we see James Brown rehearse. So we already know what's going to happen. I'll never forget, man. We know he's about to come out. And like I said, hardly anybody knows. We're now in our audience because we had just done our performance and I'm just watching. And here comes Michael, man. And oh we even, we're all shaking. Yeah. Like our hearts are beating because it's like yeah. James had to be like, wow. Yeah. What year was that again? Because I remember, uh, I don't remember exactly when. Shoot, man, that was 2002. One time I had the privilege of talking to Malcolm McLaren, the legendary impresario who sort of invented punk rock. After the Sex Pistols, the band that he had put together and managed, had just broken up, he came to New York in the early 80s glum and looking for some new inspiration. By some series of events, I can't remember exactly how, but he ended up at a Bronx Park jam where Africa Bombada was DJing. McLaren was absolutely gobsmacked to be in this playground watching hundreds of people, B-boys and B-girls, getting down to the song Cars by Gary Newman. They had no idea who Gary Newman was, but it was just funky and the DJ was playing it and they were getting down. And this has always been the story of early hip-hop. 
If it's funky, if it's soulful, it's ripe for the playing. The breakbeats, i.e. the songs that serve as the source material for early samples and breakdancing, well, those breakbeats that form the cornerstone of hip-hop come from all ends of the musical spectrum, be it James Brown and Sheik or the Monkees, Bo Diddley and Billy Squire with the big beat. Plus, when DJ Premier was growing up in the era of early MTV, you had these weird English bands like Flock of Seagulls and stuff being broadcast into his living room in Texas, which basically seemed as if it was from another planet to him. I've obviously spent so much time thinking about his sound, how it could be so soulful, musical, and jazzy, yet so dirty, tough, and rugged at the same time. Why Premier's sound appeals to both the hip-hop head and the headbanger, why he's beloved by Jay and Nas, but also Rage and Limp Bizkit. It might have something to do with the digesting of all these influences, running it through the genius filter, which is the DJ Premier sound. Because this cover of The Fader, it's funny because usually when we do these... I always interview people who have been on the cover of The Fader, but, and there's always a couple of issues, but that apparently is like rarer than the Magna Carta in The Fader office because it's, it's like it's the only one left because it's, I mean, it's such a legendary yeah. cover. You, Zach DeLaRocca, and, and Ron, is, were you guys, was that a picture? You guys are all shot yeah, that together. Yeah, we're all together, together yep. That never happens anymore. Whenever you see those sort of like yeah, legends morphed, covers, it's, morphed, it's, yeah, yeah, everybody's nah, put that together. together. That's Mount Rushmore's shit. And we had so much, for one, for me to be able to just chill with Ron. yeah. I think that's a dream come true, yeah. man. And then Zach, I had uh, already gone to a Rage Against the Machine show to see how they performed, and yeah. then boom. Then come 99, when we dropped the full clip album, they're like, we want you to open up for the Battle of Los Angeles tour, and we went on tour for them for a, damn near a month. Yeah. The way you see me on stage now yelling and screaming, because of Zach. Right. I was already impressed years prior but opening up for them, yeah. we had to change our songs around. Yeah. Master Pill wasn't working. All right. the mosh pits yeah. wasn't working. And we had Bumpy with us, Suge and H Stacks from Forbids as part of Gangstyle Foundation. They were like, yo, man, I don't like the way these mosh pit motherfuckers are and all this. I'm like, no, we got to change the songs around. Like Militia, they loved it all yeah, the time. Yeah, of course. Because Bumpy's so animated and he comes with the squirt gun and he's yeah. spraying him and he's got the mace on a big ass stick with, with the little spiked metal balls and he's just so theatrical suge same thing so we changed our stuff to like brainstorm and tons of guns yeah yeah just the and hard yeah joints. so yeah. by the fifth show we were on and now yeah. we're just killing it yeah. every night yeah we're all doing arenas then we had these big gangstar ramps and Guru's very athletic, stacks is athletic, so they would run and jump on them. Now they're posted up and they're throwing their fists on and it was just working. Everything Amazing. was working. And and then at the end of the show we do You Know My Steez last and right after we hit do You Know My Steez when he goes, uh, Fat B's they play on uh, one dope shit put me on Word is Born, we go the whole all of us go, You know my Steez and try to hold it as long as we can yeah. without running out of breath. And the crowd's just going, yeah. And, I, and and right before we walk off, I say, you know what time it is? Rage, 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 yeah. rage. And they start, and they just got rage, rage. And we just one by one walk off, and they're still just going rage, right? And that's how we did it every night. And we'll see them on the side, Zach and Brad and, and Tom and Timmy. And they're just sitting there going, whoo, 
because yeah. that means they were always checking. It's the perfect yeah, like, build up for like, that. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god. So you said that you learned how to like be on the mic and be super amped mm -hmm. now because of that. Because of the way you had to change the show and yeah. that. And Guru was never going to be quite that guy to be like you know he Guru was just always classic. Mm -hmm. and, but he knew how to talk to the crowd, and we just had a dope exchange. He's always been good at talking to the crowd, yeah. or he'll say a be like sucker be such and such and such and then motherfucking this. and they're just like oh and go right into tons of guns i'm like put your guns up and you know that crowd yeah, was, with, was with that and but it just worked man when we changed our, our songs around i went to see a, this other bank that i really liked in like 92 or something 91 called maggie's dream that were like linked somehow to lenny kravitz they mm -hmm. were like a new york band that played 70s funk and soul and I went to see them at a benefit in LA and Rage were also on the bill. I had no idea the album wasn't out for a year at least. Right. And I, at that moment, just forgot everything else that I'd come to see the show for. And I was just watching Rage Against the Machine. And I was like, this is like, you know, Tom Morello transforming on the guitar mm -hmm. and then the energy and the, the groove of it. I was, I think every Tuesday I would go to the record store and be like, is Rage Against the Machine out yet? <laughs> like my voice had broke. I'd just be like, because you never, you didn't know if you were a kid. Like you weren't savvy enough to know. And I remember their very first show. I, I would always look at the back of the Village Voice, and I remember the first time it said Wetlands, Rage Against the Machine. I was like, I'm going to that fucking wow, show. Wetlands, that's a small venue, tiny. too. And I was in the very front row, and the album had only been out for a week, but I knew all the lyrics. And Zach Delaroca put the mic into the front row in the middle of Killing in the Name Up, and I like jumped, like I pushed everyone out there. I was like, fuck. <laughs> like I was, yeah, I was such a huge man when they did that on their fan. encore and the whole band. They turn the lights on when they do when they get to the because you know how it builds up. I won't do what you tell me. I won't do what you tell yeah. me. And then he'll just he won't even say it. They're just going fuck you. I won't do yeah. what you tell me. The yeah. whole building and the lights come on and then you know even at the end he goes motherfucker. Yeah. And I'm just dude. I'm, I'm talking about like goosebumps. But uh, when we opened up for him, it was us at the drive-in and anti-flag. I just read that, too. I didn't realize that at the drive-in was also on those mm -hmm. bills. That's another band cool that ass I was dudes, fucking crazy man. about. Cool. We all were cool. We, all of the security, because the Rage's security was tight. And it was a trip, because every time we got into town, we'd go to our hotel to like drop our bags. Cause we always had to get to the venue early, though, yeah. to go open up. Because it got yeah. to that point after the first show of setting up and getting everything adjusted. Now they'll just always have our shit set yeah. up and ready to go. Yeah. Uh, shout to Vic Black of Gangstar Foundation. He, uh, the one that played the uh, drug dealer in Just to Get a Rep. Oh, yeah. He was our stage manager. Uh-huh. And... You know, it was expensive to haul up our equipment on an 18-wheeler, you know, because we, we were getting tour support, but yeah. it was Rage's 18-wheeler with all of their equipment. They said, the rules is this. We'll let y'all put stuff on our 18-wheeler, but you only have 11 minutes to break down the whole stage. Even though the union helps them yeah. break it down, 11 minutes or you get charged $1,000 a minute for being late okay. setting stuff back up because they got we have to have a certain section yeah. in the truck for them to load up their equipment after the show is over. And Black would always have it down by in like seven minutes. And we're talking about big speaker Jesus. setups. Yeah. We had couches because we, we made it look like D&D &D, yeah. room. So we had couches on each side with a vocal booth in the middle where that guru comes out of the vocal booth, steps down the stairs and comes on stage. And my turntable had her open. The whole turntable opens like a door with the Gangstar logo on it. So it was really, really yeah. elaborate. Yeah. And it was dope because, you know, now you can sit on the couch and rhyme or hop on. And then we had those those ramps with the Gangstar logo. So yeah. it was just amazing to do that. 
and understand the protocol of big tours because that's not what we're used to. And we learned so much. We we just got along so well, the whole the whole squad. It was a dope and crazy. That, that's why now when you see me on stage, yeah, watching how Zach starts shivering and shaking and, and, and he just starts just losing it. I feel that way, but I was too afraid to do it on stage. Yeah. Now I'm just like, man, and I got to thank Fame from MOP because he was one like, yo, that's what you you need to do that. This is on the Smoking Grooves tour. He's like, yo, you need to be the hype man because I, I would just be like, hey, y'all, y'all ready? Y'all ready for Gangstar? He's like, no, you got to be like, yo, what's up? You know, Fame was like, you got to do that. That's funny because that just reminded me of such a, of a random story, but the fact that Fame from MOP saw you do the show and told you to do something. It just gave me this flashback to, I was playing MOP Downtown Swinger, one of my favorite beats, obviously nice. produced by you of all time. I used to always play it. There's something about when that came in, it was just like the hardest thing. You you couldn't play it any moment of the set or any crowd, but if it was the right time, the, it was the right crowd, that shit would just go off <laughs> so crazy. And I was playing it, it was at the Montreux Jazz Festival. Wow. I was playing after Eric Sermon, and I was with my friend Daniel Merriweather, this amazing singer who I made a lot of records with, and Dan, if he heard a beat that he liked, and we all had a few drinks by the end of the set, he would come back out and just start singing over the instrumentals, and Dan's singing over Downtown Swinger, and Eric Sermon runs on stage and goes, yo, you need to cut your boy singing over that song right there, and that was, I think that's why I might wow. have even hit you very early on when I was just like, only known really as, as a DJ, and you... I think you gave me the instrumental because it wasn't ever out as an right, instrumental. No, no, it wasn't. We cut a little demo, but yeah, that MOP, those records, I mean, Downtown Swinger is just yeah, man. one of the, one of the best. I wasn't always making straight instrumentals and I would always do a TV track. Plus with MOP, they were like, we need it for shows. Yeah. Even to watch them do their backgrounds. Yeah. They'll do all this stuff. We'll talk about 10 to 15 people in the booth. I mean, the MOP, just the two of them have the energy of 10 to yeah. 15 people in the yeah. booth. Yeah. Guru used to call them Run DMC on steroids. Yeah. <laughs> to work with them is just one of them. For one, I was, I was fanning out because once I saw How About Some Hardcore Video, yeah. I was like, these dudes need to be heard. Yeah. And that's why I was like, I got to find a way to meet them. Yeah. And I was doing BLS at the time, doing the Thunderstorm with Geronimo. We were a straight underground show. We came on two hours before Flex, and Flex was the man even then. Flex would even call me in between commercials, like, yo, what was that you just played? Because he's coming on after yeah. me, so we're not yeah. even colliding with each other. Yeah. I'd be like, oh, oh uh, Havoc stopped by and brought this shook ones. He's like, I got that. I said, no, this is part two. And he's like, is he still so there? So you're one of the first people to play oh, Shook yeah. One's Havoc part two brought on the radio. It directly. Holy shit. Also, um, I had no idea when I was looking at your discog today that I forgot that you had produced Peer Pressure, which was the first single off of, which yeah. I knew from listening to Stretch and Bobito, and obviously Shook Ones was kind of was their big explosion, but without yeah. Peer Pressure, that was a sort of an underground hit on the first record. Like It's almost like the Fuji La remix on the first mm -hmm. Fuji's record. Like They might not have got to make the score if it wasn't right, for that. Right. So, I mean, the Nappy Heads remix, sorry. So there's a way in some ways that that peer pressure be kind of like, probably at least allow them to make a second album. Well, peer pressure is, thanks to Lars Professor, he's the one that called me and said, hey, there's this group called Mob Deep. I did this song called Peer Pressure. Now on Juvenile Hell album, Again, 
Mine is the remix. Right. They just switched it, flip-flopped right. it. They called Lost Professor really? the remix, but Lost Professor gave me his version to see if I wanted to work with him. Yeah. So when he gave me that, I'm yeah. like, yeah, I like these kids. Yeah. He, I said, how old are they? He said, man, they're teenagers. They're like 14, 15. Yeah. I was like, damn, they speaking, they rhyming like that about the streets? Yeah. Yeah, I want them. So mine is really a remix, and then they said, yo, we like this version. We're going with yeah. a video. I was on tour with Gangstar, so I couldn't be in the video because they wanted me in it. We were in Europe, so they sh they were like, "Do you mind if we shoot it, even though you're not going to be in there?" I was like, "Of course." Yeah. And then when it came out with the album, I was like, "Yo, they did the credit." I'm very credit conscious. I want the spelling right. I want everything mentioned. Who engineered it? Because I used to look at all the albums and read who's this, who's the producer. Yeah. I was like, "Oh man, y'all did it wrong. Mine should be the remix, and Large Professor's the original." They were like, "No, nah, because yours ends up being the single." Right. So if we put our remix, it doesn't really coincide with their first single. Yeah. yeah. I was like, ah, still whack, but because yeah. that's how much I want to correct. I don't want anybody miscredited. Of course. And I'm still like that to this very day. So boom, it ended up being the original. But that's a remix. <laughs> also, back to the Zach thing, because that whole issue is really mm -hmm. about that era in '99, 2000, when there was this, you know, a lot of hybrid with rock and rap, and you had. Yeah, You had some really good stuff. I feel like Rage Against the Machine were by far the best and the only one that's really aged very well because they understood the soul of hip-hop and it was political music. So Yeah, look at that little look Kim little coming Kim. soon. I know. Which, like, which album was that? Was that with the jump that, off? That had to be. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, you're right. Because this is Born Again, December yeah. 7th, so he had already passed. So. Yeah. And you did something on the Born Again. Yeah, record, with right? uh, Red MF, uh, Rap Phenomenon. Yeah. And you were, I mean, you had to have been close with Big, I mean, beyond just being in the studio, because I feel like you don't really work with anyone that you don't fuck with as a person. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We were all cool, man, because so much has happened with hanging with Big, besides the records. You know, I'll never forget... I had my 94 BMW, chromed out, dope-ass rims, and me and J. Rue... Jay was is popping at the time. Sunrise East had just dropped. It is already circulating. Everybody knows the songs. We're driving down Fulton, big, and then just happened to be on the corner. And he, he stops traffic because we're almost at the stoplight. Yeah. Big walks up to my driver's window and goes, "Paul, what do I have to do to get one of these?" <laughs> And I said, dude, you're going to get it. Like, Puff's going to make sure you're good. Don't worry about it. He's, he's going to make sure you popping soon. He's like, oh, it's taking too long. I'm like, you got to be patient, man. Yeah. It's part of the process. You're going to pop, which yeah. he did. And uh, and he goes, J. Rue, by the way, if you ever do a video to Brooklyn Took It, I just want to stand next to you and just look hard and not even say nothing. And, wow. and J. Rue goes, all right. And, you know, <laughs> it actually makes my hair sent up to know these like stories yeah man to know that jeru who was had some real genuine huge club records with come clean and yeah. the bitches and everything but like can't to know the there profit. was a chance out the profit to know there was this time when big was like looking at you yeah. like dude you are you 100 where it's at 100 no, wow the, the, not none of this is made up everything is factual yeah yeah man yeah mm -hmm. jesus I mean, stories really do just rain from the sky when you're talking to this man. And thinking of a moment in time where Biggie, unknown but soon to be a giant superstar, was looking up to Jeru the Damager, a respected artist with a few underground hits. Like he, Jeru was the lord of Brooklyn. 
Also, what a fork in the road they would soon represent for hip-hop, with Biggie and Puff becoming the symbol of flossiness in this player lifestyle, while J. Rue would deride this very lifestyle in songs like You're Playing Yourself. In a world where rap beefs and allegiances were extremely dangerous, Preem was somehow this beloved character who could walk both sides of the line, simply probably because he was so good, but also incredibly real. In fact, I wonder now talking to him if some physical violence was actually spared by the fact that these artists had these incredible rugged primo beats to air their grievances over sometimes. I mean, the way he tells the story of Biggie turning to him with a wink and saying, you know I'm gonna have to go at your man on this song, right? I mean, wow, it's chills. It's also a joy to watch Primo leaf through this incredibly rare old issue of The Fader, looking at himself some 20 years ago, just being a young man, smoking a blunt at a photo shoot, all these memories flooding in. Even for someone who's been such a part of history, you can tell he doesn't spend time looking back, dwelling on past accomplishments, but it's sort of a pleasure to watch him do so. I know I'm smoking a blunt right there. Oh, yeah. Damn. Because I'm not in, I mean, well, you know what? In the younger days, yeah, you'd see me with a blunt, and, you know, we were always yeah. weed advocates. But now, I, would, I never do shit like that. But again, I was young, ignorant. We Look at me hitting you. a fucking blunt. Also, because we were talking a little bit earlier before, we'll keep it PG, but Patrick Moxie. Of course, uh, who I knew from because I was just starting out in the clubs and he was already had payday and yeah. you guys. But also you guys were swimming at that, that time through different scenes in New York, not just like the tunnel scene or whatever. Like I'm sure you had it was probably pretty wild, like what New York in the kind of late 80s, early 90s with all that. I guess it was kind of wild, like fashion models. Yeah. Russell, like all that shit. Yeah. Before I just met Guru, maybe months prior, I came back to New York for us to record Words I Manifest. It was the first song we ever recorded, and uh, it took off. So when I was now about to get signed, and I tried just signed my deal, but we still hadn't done the album yet, Guru took me to the Payday, which it was the Milky Way as well. They had two different ones. And he was like, you know, you got to meet this guy that wants to manage me. He said he's always at the spot. He said the difference is, he says kind of like a Studio 54 vibe. He said... Uh, was it the one in the Lower East Side where there was like where the, all the cobblestones, the uh, yeah. uh, streets are, yeah, yeah, way down there? Well, it always moved, you yeah. know, every make maybe every two weeks or once a month it would move, yeah. and you had to know where it was, yeah. And it was word of mouth. It was almost like whispering, you know, like, "Hey, man, the payday's gonna be at so and so." Yeah. So just the fact that you had to find out where it is, word of mouth, you might run to somebody that's gonna get into that club and being down. Just having to run them going, walking around the city of New York, and they'll be like, yo, Payday's yeah. gonna be popping in two weeks at this spot. Here's a flyer. And just like, oh my God. And Did I would you go. DJ the parties back then too? Because now you, you know, obviously do full headline sets just to DJ Premier, but were you back no. then? No. The first gig I ever DJ was called Mars. Oh, right. And of that I've was heard the new spot after Milky Way and Payday. Right. It was all about Mars yeah. over in the Meatpacking District. And I'll never forget Jam Master J walked in and I was playing straight out the jungle and the booth is, you know, elevated and I'm so you could look down at everybody. And Jam Master J walked in, which was a big deal, and he walked in and he's like bopping and he points, he's like, Yo, you killing it And I'm like, Ooh, Jam Master J said, I'm killing it. I don't even know me. I know. 
And shout out to my dancer, H.L. Rock, who was part of the dancer in uh, Gangstar. If you look at the Manifest video and even in uh, the Positivity video, he's the mom that's tied to the ropes. Right. That's, that's our dancer. Me and him went to college together. Yeah. When I moved permanently, he rode with me, shotgun in my truck. The whole way to New York, all my records got wet completely. Yeah. It rained every day. Yeah. We drove for like a day and a half straight up the coast of 95, and all my records got wet and water damaged. You know, I heard, and I heard you were still like drying those records, and even the ones that you made some hits off of, like yeah, even question remains. Right? Question yeah. remains. Is from you see how it's going? Like, boom, boom, boom. That's boom, what boom. it's from. From yeah, the water damage. I couldn't record. get the rest of it peeled off. Like I guess you did a few trips in New York, and you thought that it wasn't happening. You had to drive all the way back with all the records, right? Yeah, no, I left them at my grandfather's house. Even though he had passed, his wife was still you living. Thought, you thought the dream was maybe yeah. dead and you were going back. And I said, I'm going back one more time. And then everything went the way, way it went. And it just kept going up from there. Yeah. yeah. I know we talked about this on the Apple show a little bit, but the thing that you just said about Jam Master Jay walking in and pointing to you and saying you're killing it i mean it obviously reminds me so quickly of the time when i was djing the voodoo album release party and i played the nika costa record like a feather i just produced mm -hmm. and you came in the booth yep and you were like what is this and i was like oh my god he's gonna be like who is <laughs> who has stole my whole style i'm gonna go beat someone down and because i was you were my hero everything that i made was somehow influenced by you the way that i thought even though i was doing it wrong chopping up chops on the pads the syncopation everything like you were i copied you so much that i was sort of a clone like i had to go then find my own <laughs> thing and luckily with nika the other producer justin you know we all added these other elements that luckily made it its own thing but when you came in the booth and i was playing that record and you told me that you fuck with it and you stayed in the booth like that was the high point of my career up to then and i mean honestly I would be embarrassed to play some productions that I did from that time because they're just like, you would just sit me down and be like, son, this is really good, but you have to find your own thing now. Like, it's so lucky that I met the Dap Kings because mm -hmm. if I hadn't have found that, I worry that like, would I just still be making like DJ premiere knockoffs for like nobody? <laughs> I know you're so generous and kind with like the younger generation producers and, and people but it, it must have been at some point when you just heard everybody taking your shit that you just wanted to be like, guys, you got to go all find your... There's a, there's already a... Um, there's already it, a DJ premiere. It became to where it's like, these motherfuckers, but at the same time, I'm like, well, you're the one that's leading the pack of being unique and, and different. Just like Guru always says, update your formula. Still stay in that funky yeah. zone. I remember there was write-ups where it's like, he uses the same hi-hat all the time. Right. Then I started doing shit with no hi-hat. Yeah. Questlove said it recently, like, ah, when we put out the Gangstar record Glowing Mics a few months back for the uh, Posthumous album that yeah. we dropped as a bonus cut, and <laughs> Questlove said, ah, so you put the, you're back to hi-hats. Yeah. Because it's like that That lets me know, oh, okay, I'm being studied like that because I'm, I'm yeah. not expecting of people course to be, you are. yeah, I'm not expecting people to be studying me like that. So I'm like, oh, okay, now you're saying I use the same hi-hat, cool. Right. Where there's nothing there now, and that's going to work, you know. So the, I I'm mean, back to hi-hats. So. Yeah, and I, and I even remember being like, oh, he doesn't put the hi-hat <laughs> where the kick and the snare is because it's already there on the drum. So make sure you program. I mean, listen, all the kind of things. But yep. that thing that really blew my mind was when you started to make the beat and uh, 
you don't listen to the metronome, the click track, once you start laying the beat. Right. And, and most people do, because then how, how do you know what tempo you're at? Right. But you have some crazy inner clock. I just know where I want it to land from the way it's got to sound funky to yeah. me. And again, I definitely put that to DJing. Yeah. You know, you're a DJ. You understand that science. And I just think it helps more if you're a DJ. Yeah. Even if you're a musician as well, DJing's a whole different type of clock. One of the best yet was such an incredible record. I mean, it's so... Thank you. I think I saw you just as you were kind of wrapping it up, and I still can't believe, I mean, you obviously treat a guru's voice and his vocals with such love and care that you never would have known that those were made out even posthumously. Yeah. And his voice, for somebody who we all know lived a pretty, you know, hard life, he still sounds so young. It doesn't yeah. age. I mean, I was thinking that when I was listening to it, I was like, did you pitch his voice up a little? Like, it's still, nah. he still sounds incredible. I took them just like they were. You know, there were certain ones I was like, mm, I wouldn't have cut his vocals that way because, yeah. you know, I'm very meticulous about cutting vocals. And then to see some of the reviews, like, oh, the album's dope, but the guru doesn't sound this way or this way on certain ones. It's like, you dummy, Come we on. told you. Of course. These are vocals that I had nothing to do with, and I'm piecing it together to get a gangster album to the fans. Yeah, they, of course. They deserve another album at least. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, even for me, I wanted another album. Yeah, I'm course. a fan of us. So, yeah. yeah, it's like, you know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I loved about, remember I told you I didn't want to show my process. Yeah. You're the first ever that I let you see my process and, and not not see it, but to put it on film and right. let the world see it. I'm so anti that. Yeah. I like the mystique. Yeah. And I was like, when y'all sent the footage to show me how y'all going to run it, I was like, wow, I like this. Great. I like the coloring, Great. the filtering, everything. It was so accurate where I was like, I don't yeah. need nothing changed. Great. I don't know why I imitated Premier to the extent that I did early in my career. I think we all have heroes, and when we're forming our own sound, in that nascent phase of finding our voice or whatever, we wear our influences on our sleeves, to a fault. Until we hopefully stumble on our own voice, but it takes bravery to find that, to leave behind what's familiar to our ear, and to trust our own gut, our own sounds and productions, and also to come to terms with the fact that there is already one DJ premiere, and that position is filled quite well. So why would you want to be a budget carbon copy? In my case, I think I broke out because I was matched with some incredibly inspiring artists. Nika Costa, Lily Allen, Amy Winehouse. Artists who had a clear vision and a sound of their own. They inspired me to break out of what I was doing and evolve into this producer that could match their talent, serve their vision. Premier is very generous about his outsized influence, never deriding the copycats. He just sees it as his responsibility to evolve and lead by example. This one came out great. I, just, I forgot about this, man. What's that? They got me, King of Beats, and Run, King of Rock. And, and uh, Zach, King of Rage. King of Rage, that's I, good. I, I know. It's wow. kind of crazy Shout to, to go. Stone, man. Yeah. Well, Rob Stone wanted me to also tell you that you're obviously such a big part of why the magazine's called The Fader because of Dwick from the song Dwick. Take mm. me out with The Fader. Like that. Right. It's the first time I ever met Jonathan Mannion, too. On that shoot. Yep. Chairman Mao. Just Chairman Mayo, too. Did he do Mao, that? Mao, Mao, Mao. <laughs> Did he do the interview? 
Oh, uh, yep. Oh, wow. Story about Chairman Mao. Oh, That's man. my guy. Yeah. We go way, 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 way back. They were all there, man. They were all there for the, since they call us the golden era, they were all there. Yeah. Yeah. The series, I really like the series that you've been doing as well. Is it called Floppy Disc? What's it called? Uh, so What's Up. Oh, The salute to the Floppy Disc, yeah. Okay. I think that's one of the other really admirable things about what you do. You're still a couple million followers on social media without ever selling out. You just do your thing. It's never corny. It doesn't feel like somebody's like, hey, you got to make some videos for the kids. Like, right. But it's really impressive, I think, because there's very few other people from the era that are relevant, haven't changed their shit. Is it important to you, like social media and these things? I know you said you run the Gangstar account, you run your account. Mm -hmm. And even the store. Yeah. After we did the verses with me and RZA, and then I did a, a tribute, I think, to Guru, or it was some type of tribute, I think. Because people are like, man, who, does somebody do yours? I'm like, no, I do it. Yeah. Even what I write, it has to sound like I wrote it. Yeah. I know a lot of people have their stuff done by people, but I wouldn't feel right having somebody do mine. I mean, it's crazy what a huge thing Versus has become now, but that was yeah, really... Yeah, shout to Swiss and Timberland, yeah. man. Oh, my God. What did they sell that shit for, like, 300 Woo! million or something? But yours was... Well, they gave us shares. They gave us the shares in, in the stocks Great. of it, so... Great. Good well, looking out, guys. You definitely deserve it because <laughs> it was very much in the beginning of the pandemic, and we all wanted something yeah. to watch and something to unite us all, but... Yours was the first one because I was in England, and I was like, I got to set my alarm clock for 2.30 in the morning <laughs> and wake up, and it was so special and there was no element of like competition it was just like two people who were, had a lot of respect for each other just yeah. going through it was there any point when it started i don't know what your relationship with riz is like was there any part beforehand that you were like i wonder if he's gonna come with the guillotine swords for me like what like were yeah, you thinking about I, it when we lived in Branford marcellus's brownstone in 92, when we were working on daily operation, Branford was actually just moving when we were stepping the arena. It was already out. He was about to move because he was the new music director for The Tonight Show. Right. So after we did jazz thing for Spike Lee's Mo' Better Blues, we got really close. And he was like, yo, man, I'm going to be moving if y'all looking for a place to move to. During that time, we all living together. Him, his wife, his son, and me and Guru. And the Risen, the Jizza used to always come to our house and hang out with us, and we just smoke and listen to stuff. Jizza had just left cold chilling. He said, man, I'm going for this hardcore. And Rizza told us at the house, I'm starting a crew called the Wu-Tang Clan. Yeah. Yeah, and he said, I'm getting all my homies from Staten Island. Jizza's going to be part of from Brooklyn, and uh, I'm getting Old Dirty Bastard. And we already knew Old Dirty Bastard in 88 because he was at the New Music Seminar, you know, I have a picture with us when Old Dirty had the stair step flat top. He was a son unique. Yeah, he was a son unique. Yeah. yeah. So we knew him as a son. That's why when he does it on Brooklyn Zoo, yeah. it ain't made up. That's what he was. Yeah. You know, so yeah. so we were all cool. And then all of a sudden when Wu Tang came out, we was like, wow, he, he said they were going to come out with yeah. this. And then we'd have friendly competition. Yo, I got a joint coming out. It's going to spank, spank your record that you did with Jay Rue. And I'm like, all right, all right, all right you'll see. Yeah. Drop another record. And then, like I said, when Cream came out, I was like, damn, he got He's like, I got a piano joint. It's going to smash your record. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that D original was hard, but wait till you hear this piano shit. I'm all like, right. yeah, whatever. And then all of a sudden, ding, 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 ding. I was like, oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. Oof. Cream is... You know, that's... That whew. is an all-timer. Yeah, is and then when you have, find out you have the record, you're like, God 
damn it, I missed that. Oh, uh, you had it the whole oh, time. Oh, yeah. Sharp, like, a lot of my mother's records yeah. is, is standard, in a, especially in a, in a black household. Yeah. You're going to pretty much have the same yeah. record collection to the for the most part, especially if it's Al Green, Curtis, Mayfield, Barry White, Aretha, the whole Motown history. Every black family is going to have that in the yeah. house. And the Charmels, all the stack stuff. And that's a standard. Who were the other producers in that era that there was friendly competition? I imagine like Buck Wild, like Easy Mo. Yeah, I didn't really like know who. Buck yet. I, I met him through, through DITC, you know. Right. Obviously, he was coming up more when he, when OC uh, and him did, did the Word Time's Life up. album okay. and Time's Up, yeah. yeah. Me and I Buck think everyone cool. maybe even thought Time's Up. There's a couple beats like in history, I feel like, that everyone assumes that you did it. I feel like Time's Up is one, and I feel like Anti Up is obviously one because Anti Up is because of the clean version. I put my sound effects on right. it, and I mixed the record. And I think because you already had a history with it at the MOP and it sound, you know. Yeah, I mean? yeah, I mixed it with Eddie Sancho at right. D&D, but it was only because Lay's, who's, you know, handles MOP, Lay's was like, yo, we need it right now yeah. because uh, Loud wants to. Get, get it to radio to the streets for some reason it was a day that that dr wasn't around to get it done and a shout to dr period because he's one of my favorite producers yeah. man Yo, yeah yeah of course he's for the, how about some hardcore right. yeah. with smooth the hustle all that stuff and uh me, me and him got to know each other and get cool and i was just like yeah I'll, I'll do the mix and we did it and then when i did the clean version i used my sound effects that i'm traditionally known for yeah so that made people go oh preem yeah. did it. i know those sound effects and it made me wish i didn't do my sound effects because right. i didn't want to take credit for doing something yeah. that dr did he deserves the entire credit yeah. i just mixed it down and with eddie sancho and it it came out to be a good mix yeah and to hear it now to this day it's like when as soon as that mm, yeah and then drops yeah, and it's just man it feels like you know with the past few years the drake joint and conway and Westside gum being really exciting and everything like do you feel excited or in a good place about the current state of hip-hop and just like working within you know what's going on now i just feel that no matter what's out there do what you think is fly if you're that deep rooted into what you're in the music business for. I like to work with everybody. Um, I got a DM from Morris Day, and I've always wanted to meet him. I've always wanted to meet the Tom, you know, yeah. I meet Terry, I mean, Jimmy Jam, and ask him advice on stuff. And yeah. and I'm a member of the Grammys, and I haven't even utilized my position at the Grammys. I'm like, yo, man, what a, I want to do this and be more involved, and what do I need to do? And he's like, well, you need to do this and this and this, and, you know, this is what you got to do, and if you're going to do this, you got to do this, you know, this stuff to... And I'm like, damn, I can actually text yeah. fucking Jimmy Jam, yeah. man. And never met Morris. And he's just like, hey, man, I got this record called Head Rush. I want to see if maybe you could do a remix to it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what's it going to take? And I was like, yo, just send me the acapella. And and I'm just like, yo, he here's my number. I'm like, I got Morris. Yeah. Days was this just number. recently? Yeah. It's amazing yep. that you're still, like, moved by that. Because, I what? mean, obviously, because you are such a fan of music, that's what makes your stuff so great. But it's funny to me think you're still getting geeked out. Yeah. Uh, I produced this album for this artist, Yeba, who you met Yo, recently. And dude, it, that shit she did with, with Drake is so... Oh, yeah. Just so refreshing. I want to work with her so Yeah, she. Bad. I mean, obviously, she loves you. But the record came out over the weekend, and I 
Greg Fillingaines, who was mm. the yeah, only keyboard player keyboard probably player, other than yeah. Stevie Wonder to play on songs in the key of life and played the solo on yeah, with all the Don't Jackson Suck You Get stuff, Enough yeah. and Michael Jackson's MD. I get this FaceTime and he's never, I probably texted him once because we've done a session, but I, I never had a FaceTime and I see and I'm like, oh, this must be a mistake. And it's FaceTime video. Greg Fillingaines, I answer. He's like, I don't know what you're eating in your food young man it's very sweet because i'm 46 now he says young man but he's like that yeba record is something i don't know he's like that wow. to me is the most exciting musical thing that's something he was just being very but i was like i can't believe like I, I can't this is greg filling games i cannot wait to just even get off the phone yeah. and tell yeba and james francis <laughs> i would do the same thing as greg yeah. filling games yeah and yeba yeah I, I, she's she's dope man yeah if i don't get to work with you yeba we gonna, I'm going to come to all your shows and just be the, you know, a troll that they're going to have to arrest me like no. a, and put a restraining order she's, on me. I want to work with you, Yeba. I think she probably, she told me that maybe even she used to even take instrumentals of yours off of YouTube wow. and make demos back in the wow. day. So she just, worked with Brady too, man. Br yeah. Brady has something with her. It's, I'm going to send you the album because I'd love you to check it out. It just came out on Friday. Oh, no, no. I'll buy it. I'll buy it. I'll buy right. it as soon as I leave here. I have my fucking therapist at 2 o'clock. I'm so sorry. Get your therapy on, man. Very I would, important. I, is that all right? I just so... I know... Uh, yeah, this is therapeutic. talk about this phrase. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is therapeutic. Um, yeah. Thank you, man. Oh, it's such a fucking honor. I'll say project. one more thing. Yeah. I consider myself a purist. Yeah. So the fact that I'm raised on such good music to where before hip-hop even came around, yeah. that's the reason why I'm very into how hip-hop is preserved. Any new artist that comes out, any new sound that changes, let the young generation have their sound. But that doesn't mean we have to abandon yeah. ours just yeah. because they have the new sound that's on radio. As a matter of fact, uh, I just saw this. Somebody put a, put a post to this, what Ghostface said, and uh, this is how I feel. In regards to art, he said, I don't give a fuck if you didn't know what I'm talking about. This is art. When you go see a painting on the wall and it looks bugged out because you don't know what the fuck he's thinking, because he ain't got no benches, no trees. It's just a splash. That nigga did it and, and he know what the fuck it is. Yeah. And that's true. It's beautiful. That's true. Shout out to and, GFK, man. Yeah. I love this quote that you said, actually. You said, I'm indebted to preserving the sound of the city. And I do feel like you're just like, if yes, yes like that's. You're you're an architect of it. You continue to uphold it. You're on yeah. the fucking Mount Rushmore of New York. Yeah, I make buildings, man. And when I put up a building, it's gonna be a building you'll never forget. That's yeah, that's what I'm start saying, man. I make yeah. buildings. Building. <laughs> building. Get your therapy on Mark anytime, yeah. bro. It's All good right. to see Thank you, man. You so much. All right. The doctor has left the building. <laughs> Premier. Again, his influence is immeasurable. I mean, even as far as this podcast goes. I'm talking over one of his creations at this very moment. And my sign-off line for each episode? Well, that comes from the classic DJ Premier-produced gangstar song Dwick featuring Nice and Smooth. And that line goes, Peace out, Premier, take me out with the fader. So, take me out with the fader. Thanks again to DJ Premier for taking the time to talk with us. A special Fader thank you to our Grammy and Oscar award-winning host, Mark Ronson. Please visit thefader.com slash podcasts to read the original cover story and check out a playlist of artists mentioned in this episode. If you like the show, please share it and review us on your favorite podcast app. Please join us next Monday to find out which of your favorite artists will be uncovered next. 
executive producers Rob Stone and John Cohen for the Fader Podcast Network. Talent booking, Robert English. Producers, Alex Robert Ross and Maddie Russell Shapiro. Directed by Daniel Nevetta and produced by The Fader in association with BYT.NYC. Engineered and mixed by David Rogers Barry. Theme music by DJ Premier. For Fader Uncovered merchandise, please visit shop.thefader.com. Thanks, and see you next week.